On Friday, the U.S. government intelligence community released a preliminary report on UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, more commonly known as UFOs. The long-awaited report comes after the declassification and release in recent years of several videos showing mysterious sightings. And while investigators said there were no extraterrestrial links to the 144 sightings that were reviewed, they also said there was too little information to characterize the incidents, leaving a lot of unanswered questions. Tonight, the highly anticipated report on unexplained aerial phenomena is here, but the answers are not. U.S. government officials examined 144 reports of UAPs like these and still don't know what 143 of them were. Among the possibilities they considered, debris in the air, atmospheric conditions, secret U.S. equipment, a foreign adversary's advanced technology, or simply other. The long-awaited Pentagon report on UFOs was released today, and it echoes the reporting from 60 Minutes that there are a lot of unexplained sightings, more than 140 since 2003, including 11 near misses with U.S. aircraft. There is no evidence, the report says, that adversaries like Russia or China are behind them. So, these sightings remain a mystery. No, I'm not your enemy. I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist who's trying... Moving pretty fast, wasn't it? A few minutes from now, we may have the key to the stars. A million years of history are waiting for us in that ice. Let me know when. I want to get a picture. Commander, if you set down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When they're finished, what happens to our bodies? This Plants from another world taking over human beings. Mad as a March hare. Listen to me! We're in danger! Do you think they come from Mars? We have come to visit you in peace and with goodwill. He said he'd never seen anything like it. Is this it, Doctor? The new princesses, new queens. Yes, this is the egg chamber, the same as we found in New Mexico. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today's show, an unsolved mystery, and one that has everyone's attention worldwide. That being caused by a huge increase in sightings of UFOs slash UAPs worldwide. 
UAP meaning Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, and we'll get into that in a minute. With the U.S. leading the news cycle in the wake of the recent report to Congress this past June 25th, leading, but definitely not alone, in documenting rising incidents. Our governments have been seeing a worldwide increase in UFO activity now for 20 years, and they admit that we are not sure of the origin of these objects, but we know they are wingless, they show no visible heat source, they react intelligently, and they can move with hyper speeds, which we'll cover in detail as we get into this story. Who they belong to, where they come from, we do not know. Our goal with this series of interviews is to bring you up to date on what we know and don't know, and to identify at least the top 10 of UFO incidents in the past. Here to give us a look at UFO activity beyond our U.S. borders is Neil Nixon, well-known radio show host and UFO author. Neil, it's great to have you with us today. Good to be back, John. Hello. Hello. We've got a tremendous amount to talk about today. I'm looking forward to this discussion, especially having you with us, because you can help give us a lot of knowledge we tend to look at everything in the U.S. here as U.S.-centric. But obviously, and from what you're going to share with us, this phenomenon, increased sightings of UFO UAPs, has been happening on a worldwide basis. And you can give us a great view from the U.K. and NATO and Europe and broaden our knowledge as to what's really going on worldwide. Take us yeah, out of the U.S. Well, what's going on is, is a kind of continuation of the things that we've seen for ages. So in the U.K. at the moment... We, we register a few hundred UFO reports a year. A quiet year would be 200 or something like that. If we get towards 1,000, which we've done in the past, into the, into the high hundreds, that's a very busy year. It, it, it's a pretty normal time at the moment. There are, As there always have been, there are very strange, uncanny things going on. I mean, the, the, the UK will start registering more reports recent in, in, in from the recent past because largely because of that report that, that the US has had in the Pentagon that got a lot of coverage in, in the UK which means that it brought a lot of the UFO experts out of the, the woodwork and I was personally I was quite glad of it because my, my my latest UFO book was put back publishing wise because of the pandemic it should have come out last November for the Christmas market the publishers picked the 24th of June as World UFO Day as the, as the new publication day and of course, the news wires in the UK were lighting up with people speculating about what the Pentagon was going to say. So I, I got a few random phone calls and some press coverage that was quite fortuitous. But um, the, the big thing, I suppose, that's been debated and discussed on the news major in the UK is that a lot of what was in the Pentagon report is stuff that the British Ministry of Defence have been agreeing with for years. And the British Ministry of Defence, like obviously like, like the Americans, you know, they're part of NATO. So some of the things that they've investigated uh, are either linked to other NATO events or in one particular case, um, one of the most famous cases that got the British Ministry of Defence excited was actually in Iran in 1976. And that matters because before the revolution in Iran, they were our allies. So we had a, an interest, like shared military goals. We're having... Lots of reports of lights in the sky, random things going off. Um, you know, people are still reporting uncanny, bizarre personal experiences. They come up on social media, whatever. The, the various research groups are still active in the UK, albeit a long way down from their, their prime in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. But, uh, you know, we, we, we're still fairly busy. Most of what is coming up is, seems to be 
as with the Pentagon report, seems to be explicable in some natural way. And there are quite a few cases which people just don't know the answers to, which we can we can talk about the best ones of those in British history. Time for this report to, for the need for this report to rise to the top here in the U.S. We've had UFO sightings for a long time. We've had a number of government agencies set up to record them. We've had some government agencies set up to really debunk uh, and that happened for years as well. So we've, we've been going since about, since about 1947 when mm-hmm. interest really started to spark. We've been keeping track of it or not keeping tra- track of it, but the general feeling from the U.S. government at least was that, all right, we heard it, we wrote it down, let's ignore it. Yeah. And no matter how serious it seemed to get, and I know we'll be discussing the 1952 Washington, D.C. incident as we, as we go forward with this story, yeah. No matter how serious it seemed to get, they always would just put it on a back shelf. Mm-hmm. And what's different about this report, this report, it took 17 years, <laughs> 17 years for this report to reach Congress. And it happened step by step, department by department, person by person. The, the people that kicked this off were taking uh, declassified Navy, Navy reports from a sighting off of San Diego in 2004. And, that, and I know most of you listeners who follow what's happening recently and what happened then know that uh, this was a it was a U.S. fleet exercise off the coast of San Diego, and two major uh, ships were involved in this: the USS Princeton and the USS Nimitz. And the Princeton spotted something on their radar, something that was moving unlike uh, any man-made uh, vehicles or craft. And by the way, you'll be hearing the term UAP uh, a lot. And just to get you listeners uh, started from the top, UAP is now pretty much how we're describing what we used to describe as UFOs. UFOs being unidentified flying objects, UAP being unidentified aerial phenomenon. Yeah, it's not... If you just make a point about that, John, it's not a totally new term. It's been used before. Um... And a couple of ufologists who run a group in the United States in the late 1960s, Carl and Jim Lorenzen, I, I seem to recall that they um, they also had a different term, didn't they? UAO, which was an unidentified aerial object, i.e. Um, they were trying to discriminate between things that people thought were under intelligent control and things that might be atmospheric phenomena. So um, it, it, it's an important point to make because people trying to understand things that are unexplained in, in the sky have had to struggle to find the right terminology for it because they don't quite know what it is they're trying to define. And that's actually quite significant. Yeah. It, 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 if I could throw a couple of things in before we talk about the sure. limits. Yeah. Um, so... The Kenneth Arnold sighting in the United States kicked off the end of the flying saucer craze. And um, it's funny, when I, when I was doing my book, one of the things I was struggling to find, one thing I've not been able to resolve, is the correct spelling of the man that came up with the words flying saucer. Because the, 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 the truth of this is that um, Kenneth Arnold described the nine objects he saw as moving like a saucer would if you skipped it across water. It was a, a a journalist, a stringer for the East Oregonian, a guy called Bill Biquet, who condensed that to flying saucer. Yes. And it's one thing I couldn't even resolve on the internet, the spe- the spelling of his surname, but that, that's by the by. Britain's been investigating it officially since 1952, and that's provable by a declassified memo. So 
there was a sighting involving some RAF aircraft, um, Gloucester Meteor aircraft. One pilot in particular got a close sighting of a, a strange object in the sky that shot off at very high speed, faster than anything could could move in those days. Um, that occurred in 1952, and the the first sort of declassified UFO document in British history is a handwritten memo from Winston Churchill, who was then our Prime Minister, asking for a report on UFOs because he wasn't he, he didn't know whether it was stuff or nonsense at that point. So we're, we're, we're not far behind you. I mean, we, people have been seeing strange things in British skies for as long as people have been seeing anything in British skies. But but our our official history thereof, UFOs and what we now understand as the sort of modern UFO situation goes back to 1952 and that that one sighting from the Gloucester Meteor aircraft. The build-up toward this report, which was just given to Congress, was really initiated by a guy named Luis Elizondo. And mm-hmm. he had spent 20 years running military intelligence operations worldwide in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Guantanamo. He had not thought about UFOs until he was asked to join something at the Pentagon called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which is called AATIP. AATIP. He joined that. At the same time, Christopher Mellon, who served as Deputy, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence for Presidents Clinton and Bush, also had access to a lot of this information that was coming in. When these two guys both retired out of their positions, they took what unclassified information they could, and they were seriously concerned about it because the government kept backshelfing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, And they finally took it to... Marco Rubio, and Rubio, uh, Marco Rubio was sitting on the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, and he's a guy who had enough bling to get something done with it. Rubio called for a detailed analysis, and he got the signature, and I know you mentioned it when we've talked in the past, he got the signature from Trump Yeah. for 180 days. So the report was yeah. due in 180 days, but it took all that, it took 17 years to bring this thing to a head. But the, yeah. point, the point being that since at least 2004, we have seen a lot of increased phenomena going on, especially within range of our military installations, uh, which is worrisome. Uh, and it's been basically shelved. And I think it's a, a lot of people think it's a good thing now that it's been brought out in the open. I'm not sure what the public was expecting from this report. There was a lot of buildup to it. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of people saying, well, it's good that the government's finally coming clean with what they know. Well, the government will never come clean with everything they know. Yeah. And they don't always know everything. So it, it, no, I, I agree. And, and actually, funny enough, our government's the same, John. So we're a little bit ahead of you. That, um, there's a British ufologist called David Clark who's um, he teaches in a, a British university when he's not doing his UFO work. So like like most ufologists, it's um, it's a it's more than a hobby. It's less than a job, right? Yeah. Um, and he's used freedom of information requests in the UK over the last few years to the point where he was given access to our national archives which are held in London and he's produced books which have been full of declassified documents and the the situation with us is very much the same Um, so one thing that I thought was interesting about the Pentagon report was that it put probably more than has ever been the case in the past it put British intelligence and US intelligence pretty much in the same place because what David Clark had discovered was that there were a a handful of cases in UK history particularly to do with military encounters where clearly things were in some cases kept secret and certainly had been for a long long time and people had 
suspected that this information was there. But what it seemed to show was that there was a lot of things that had been recorded and monitored and investigated and that our military particularly and the intelligence people involved in it had concluded more or less two things. First of all, that there was genuine mystery there to be investigated. And secondly, that there was no hard evidence that any of it was extraterrestrial. And if I could just bang on about one little thing on top sure. of this. Yeah. It, 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 it's something I, something I talk about. This, there's, one his, there's one figure in the history of British ufology who really doesn't get anywhere near enough recognition for what he contributed. He was a man called Ralph Noyes, um, N-O-Y-E-S. <laughs> I mentioned his name to a journalist when I was being interviewed about the book and he, uh, he sent me an email back and spelt it noise like a loud noise. But his name was Ralph Noyes, N-O-Y-E-S. And the thing that the significance about Ralph is that he was an inside, he was a successful career Ministry of Defence official, right? So Ralph had been involved in the Ministry of Defence from just after the war until, I think, the early 1980s. He died towards the end of the last century. And I was in a research group with him for a couple of years, so I used to talk to him. I mean, he was just priceless. When During a coffee break, if you went up to him and, and dropped a name like Donald Menzel or something, right, you know, like a UFO author that I knew nothing about when I was much younger, I wouldn't get a word in for the next two or three minutes. Ralph would just... <laughs> But he was priceless <laughs> what you'd hear, right? The, the point about this is that Ralph used to say in 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 groups and at UFO conferences, he'd been saying for years that the, the MOD knew these things to be genuine and had figured out that they weren't extraterrestrial. And everything that Ralph said in those meetings just casually proved to be true when the files were eventually declassified. And... Our files were declassified really in the early years of this century and it's a very similar situation to yourselves in the sense that clearly things are out there that nobody knows about. And there, there are one or two things that still haven't been seen. I remember Ralph, again this was something that was common knowledge in, in the British UFO community that in 1970 Ralph and a number of other high ranking officials had been shown photographs and video, well film footage as it would be in 1970. Um, of things that the military couldn't explain, including a famous piece of film that doesn't last very long, of gun camera film from an RAF fighter, of something that they can't explain in the sky. Uh, now, that's still classified, but this was part of the stuff that the, the military were struggling to identify, but they felt very much was natural, like a natural, something atmospheric. They just didn't know what the hell it was, and it was having... You know, they, they were having the same problems as the US, that they were filming things, recording things on radar, reporting sightings of things. Um, and to this day, they're still trying to understand it. But um, your report seems to, in 2021, put you in a very similar position, intelligence and reporting wise, to where the British were when they declassified all the documents and let David Clark go and investigate them. Really, what came out in our report was pretty much what a lot of people expected. What we, what the U.S. admitted, was they do. There are, there are objects out there, in the sky, that we're seeing and that our military is taking video shots of and radar shots of and all kinds of shots, heat-seeking shots of everything, that act intelligently, that move extremely fast, that are wingless, that we can't identify what the power source mm -hmm. is. They're shaped differently depending on what angle they're being looked at. 
A good example was the Tic Tac incident that we just mentioned. The Tic Tac incident being, and I'll, I'll put it together as quickly as I can, the Tic Tac incident happened in 2004. We had uh, a carrier involved, the USS Nimitz. We had the USS Princeton spot something on radar. Pilots from the USS Nimitz scrambled out to take a look at it. They filmed an object that was, well, there were a number of objects, first of all, but they filmed one object that was hovering over the water. All right, about the same size as an F-18 jet, but not shaped like a jet. This had no mm -hmm. wings on it. it. It was shaped from the angle they were looking at it at, at that moment, like a tic-tac. Mm -hmm. They were able to film it moving extremely quickly, but they were also able to see it hovering just over the water. Mm -hmm. And the water below it was churning. One could imagine, well, maybe that was the power source or the heat source, but they weren't identifying a heat source. They're not sure why the water was mm -hmm. churning. And it seemed to bounce. It, it seems as if you were looking down within a, within a, a box, uh, a square box, and it, like a ping pong mm -hmm. ball bouncing off the sides, north to south, south to north, east to west, west to east. And that's what this object was doing. And when this object sensed a, rad a radar lock on it, it started to lift out of the water as the jets came down and got closer to it. And it was definitely reacting to them being mm -hmm. there. So it was intelligently operated, whatever it was, okay? Then it just disappeared yeah. in an instant. They saw, and they also clocked this thing dropping from, the, and, these, and these objects, and it turned out there was more than one object. They would come in above 18,000 feet, above our ability to mm -hmm. track radar. So they would come in from space into our radar. They would, they would drop, they could drop from 18,000 feet to the water level in seven-tenths of a second. That's not like anything that we know of that's man-made on Earth. Their ability to move quickly, to accelerate and decelerate, is far, far from anything, any technology that we are aware of, at least here on well, Earth. I, I, and that's what's got a lot of the military wondering what in the world is going on. We're not only citing those things and, and have been citing them since 2004 and beyond, they say that pilots here out of Oceana, where I live in Virginia Beach, which is a master jet base, same as the one we have in San Diego, have been seeing this stuff almost daily for mm. years off the Atlantic. So it's happening in the Atlantic and the Pacific. Yeah. We'll return to our interview right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to UFOs, the big picture, part one. Welcome to our world with Neil Nixon. One of the crucial things you said there, Johnny, is it's about what we're aware of, isn't it? So if any of your listeners are remotely familiar with stuff I've done, it's I've got a reputation amongst the UFO community as probably one of the most skeptical observers. It's it's interesting because with regard to the things like the, the, the Nimitz or the those spectacular videos that have come about recently, that, that the American military have shared recently. Um, I know we've both been looking at the same pages on the internet, and I noticed that um, on one of the one of the pages that I knew we were both looking at uh, about the, the, the Tic Tac encounter, towards the bottom of it, there's um, Kevin Day is discussing um, his view that the, the Tic Tac thing is actually a plane, and he goes into details about, um, which, which we don't need to kind of inflict on your listeners about specifically about how the camera's operating and the various camera effects and the filters that are used. But he points out that you can freeze frame it and actually get the shape of an aircraft towards the end of the video. Um, now, 
there's a few things that struck me when when these videos came to light. There were a few things that struck me about them. Uh, so I'd, I'd say two things. First of all, like yourself, you know, you're saying about these pilots that see things, amazing things all the time. Yeah. So I, I was, I've been active in UFO conferences, research, and just meeting people in, in, in what we would call the community for years. And the one thing that keeps pulling me back to just what an amazing subject we're dealing with here is that every time you go to one of these events, you meet people who've had the most incredible experiences. And they, you know, it, it's affected them. They, they, they're, if you wanted to use a kind of measure, it's about as significant as if you have a car accident or something. You know, you're you're shaken up. Your view of life might change a little bit. You can't explain exactly how things happen to you. And that is central to the whole UFO mystery. And military pilots aren't strangers to that. The same thing happens to them. Yeah. So um, one of the pilots that was involved in filming these things. I mean, she's gone public and, you know, she's, she's openly talked about this, hasn't she? That there was nothing in her training had ever prepared her for what she was seeing and what she was experiencing. Now, from my point of view, the something I would, a couple of skeptical thoughts I would throw in before I put this back to yourself, John. Um, first of all, there is a long history of the US military in particular, but other militaries as well, sometimes testing secret hardware against their own forces. Um, and that's happened and there is declassified evidence of it happening. So, for example, in the, the early 1960s, um, late 1950s, early 1960s, it was a staple of the UFO literature then, if you go back and read it, that things were being tracked on radar that couldn't possibly be aircraft because they were moving too fast and they were flying too high. Yeah. Some of those reports yes. mm -hmm. were generated by the, the SR-71 Blackbird. People in American military radar did not know this plane existed. It was top secret. Um, so <clears throat> when the American military was seeing these UFO reports, they were really glad, amongst other things, that the reports tended to get exaggerated when they were printed anyway, to the point where the speeds were phenomenal. But the Blackbird was generations ahead of it, you know, a couple of generations of aircraft ahead of the stuff that it, the, the other military stuff that was in the sky. Lots of people in the military around the world did not realize there was a Mach 3 aircraft out there, yeah? And it generated... So that's happened before. The, 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 the stealth plane was tested against civilian radar. It was flown into places where they knew that they would get civilian radar reports, yeah? Um, and and a, one or two UFO reports are stealth aircraft, basically. There's one in 1976 off Los Angeles that was quite a famous a radar UFO that somebody couldn't explain it almost certainly it was a test flight for the stealth and the thing was that it was generating strange radar returns which was a giveaway that the stealth technology was beginning to function um, you know and they just had to perfect it so there's that going on and then the other thing that I would mention is that there have been occasions in the history of UFOs when almost the perfect reports appeared at the right time um, we'll, we'll get on to Washington 1952 in a minute because this is an that's an incredible one. But the recent films that have been declassified by the Pentagon and put out there, in a curious way, remind me of everything I ever read about the Washington report in 1952, that it seems to be that suddenly there is a military threat so significant that the only way to respond to it is to develop very expensively with a lot of hands-on the technology to meet it. Now I've seen sites like Metabunk or Skeptoid, the obvious places, 
I've seen them speculating that some of these reports, these recent video reports, for example, are a combination of people misunderstanding what's on cameras. Uh, in some cases, probably military drones that are at the cutting edge that are being tested and people don't realize the capabilities of these because the mindset of the public is about what civilian drones can do and that's not necessarily the same thing for the same purpose um, and you know I've seen that I mean certainly Skeptoid discussed one of the cases of California on that basis because they pointed out that the cruise ships and whatever in the general area didn't see these so the suggestion very clearly was that these were military drones being tested against military pilots and the pilots were not were unwitting dupes in the middle of this now that might that might be possible i mean last point on this before i chuck it back to you i would love to be wrong <laughs> i would you know <laughs> if they capture the alien drone that that has got the, the metal alloy that we cannot possibly create on earth if it, if they drag that out of the sea that would be phenomenal and I, I would love that to be the case because it would mean so many significant things for us but you know I'm mindful of the fact that this does fit a pattern it's just that we last saw this on a huge scale probably in 1952 there's a couple of things I'd like to follow up on with regard to that if this were a single incident and it somehow made the press and it somehow got blown up uh, and and there was a big follow-up that tended to try to instill worry and fear among the public and support for more military spending, I could see it. But this is, a, this is many, many incidents taking place in different parts of at least two oceans. Mm -hmm. And it's, take, it's, go, it's been going on for approximately 25 years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's, it's one of those things that it, it's like a cake baking. It's finally mm -hmm. risen to the top where the government is kind of forced to have to look at it. And it just doesn't take the process of a planned event or a series of a couple of events fairly close together within a space of time that are done to achieve a certain purpose. It, it's, no. it, it just hasn't unfolded like that. I tend to see this and I tend to see what the, what the pilots say, what the people who really understand this stuff say. I'll give you a quote from uh, Luis Elizondo, who we mentioned before. He said, imagine a technology that can do six to 700 G-forces, unlike your F-4 that you were just talking about a minute ago, that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that can evade radar and can fly through air and water and possibly space, and oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. That's strong. That tells you that what you're looking at there isn't just an, uh, the next version of an F-4. For your listeners, the point I'm making here is that I think there's a relevance because the history of ufology is, the history of UFO investigation is often the history of things that seem to fit what people expected at a certain time. Um, so nearly 70 years ago now there were it, we understood the ufo menace as if our earth had suddenly been become the subject of serious interest from people from outer space um <clears throat> and that these flights of ufos were overflying particularly the united states and the sense that people made of it included things like the world had just started using atomic weapons maybe we'd alerted people in space to the fact that there was reason to come here and have a look at this right um and 
almost like the the pinnacle of that were a couple of a, a couple of Saturday nights in Washington DC in 1952. So I'll remind myself because I, I I can never remember the exact date of these things, but it was the 19th and 20th, the night of the 19th and 20th of July, and then the night of the 26th and the 27th of July. And on both occasions, without going into all the sort of numbers, the same thing to a certain extent happened. Your capital city, including the airspace over the White House, was overflown by multiple targets that didn't seem to be, that certainly were, were not understood to be planes in any conventional sense uh, you know there, there was air-to-air -air sighting so on the second on the second of those occasions and these are both these, these are a week apart basically um, you know that the, the objects were seen from on board an airliner on the on the first occasion there was radar tracking um, you know the military took an active interest and on the one hand this is a fantastic phenomenal sighting that's never been explained you'd you'd assume that the two events were linked um and you know to this day even the most impartial sources i mean the wikipedia which doesn't have an axe to grind other than it's it's got this sort of policy about you've got to be able to source your facts and stuff so you can't just go on there and run you can't explain it so on the one hand we have this hugely uncanny set of accounts and there was an american again there was an official investigation at the time we have that on the one hand on the other hand it is bizarre to say the least that the aliens just happened to overfly the capital exactly a week apart that suggests that they have the same <laughs> kind of calendar that we do right and saturday night is good for a bit of fun i mean it's you know what like it's <laughs> what so, so they, they, these were tourists they just thought they'd go and give your president a wave or something you know um and, and, and so there are those signs which suggest that whatever the hell was going on, it it had something to do with the time scale and the you know the way that humans operate. Yeah, and it, it, it's 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 a very kind of 1950s science fiction image that you've got alien. I mean, there are movies. You have the day the Earth stood still. That's pretty much what happens, isn't it? There's a, there's a UFO comes down and lands. Oh in, yeah, it was making yeah, headlines right? in the, it was um, making headlines in the Washington yeah. Daily News, and then the other news sources picked it up a week later when they buzzed when they buzzed uh, Washington D.C. the second time. That was that was quite amazing, and that was spotted by a number of people. Bowling yeah. Air Force Base picked that up. Andrews Air Force Base picked that up. Commercial pilots picked that up, and they were seeing. Uh, yeah. I think it was five. Uh, it, what at yeah. first, from a distance, looked like bright lights, and then as they got closer, hey, we've got uh, I, five moving objects here that we can yeah. identify. Yeah. For my money, it's one, it's one of the most uncanny sightings ever, and it's um, and I'm saying sightings. It, 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 it's it's the two events. We, I mean, no nobody tends to discuss one without the other, and the Wikipedia page even lumps them both together. Um, and that put the pen, and that brought the Pentagon into a into a full scale classified yes. meeting with Truman, and he said, "Man, yeah, we got to know and, what's and going it, on here. We we somebody's invading our airspace." Yeah, we, and, and we the legacy in UFO investigation is huge. It brought the Robinson panel into existence. It was the first point at which J. Allen Hynek became mm -hmm. involved in ufology, and he's one of the most significant figures in the whole history of the of ufology. And he's interesting because he started off skeptically, and then. I heard him interviewed once. There's a the video of him being interviewed, and he basically says that as a scientist, his Hippocratic oath would be to the truth. So there came a point when he was investigating UFOs when he couldn't call the people that he was meeting crazy. So you had to go with the evidence, regardless of what pressure there might be on you to debunk it. But if we come back to those Washington sightings, yep. 
that rather like the current round of videos that we're seeing at the moment strikes me that, that there are similarities it's it's almost like it's it's the case the perfect case we would imagine at that particular time the washington sightings have never been fully explained on the other hand there were certain things that happened at the time that were very advantageous to certain people like because there was a, a ufo craze and this was also seen in the movies that particularly the b movies that were being made at the time it made Americans much more aware of flying saucers, as they then tended to be called. And there were certain spin-offs for that. So it, it, it's pretty well known now, for example, that one payoff for the military was that lots of people made civilian reports of UFOs because the civilian groups came in very quickly. And that was quite useful to the American military because in the 1950s, particularly in the more rural places that could easily be attacked, like, say, the Oregon coast, the radar coverage wasn't great. Yeah, you didn't have blanket radio coverage. Yep. So mm -hmm. if the Russians decided to, you know, fly in long distance over the Oregon coast, like I say, where there's huge rural expanses, uh, it would be quite useless. So there's all of that to go with. The the hysteria around the case in Washington, it's like I say, it's almost like a science fiction imagining of what would happen at the time, and it certainly raised the awareness of it, which meant that in terms of people thinking in America that regardless of the fact that you were the greatest military power on earth by some degree at that point only the Russians remotely close um, it it still maintained the sense that you had an enemy and it might be a very good thing to spend a lot of dollars on the best aircraft the best technology the best radar yeah that was not that was not a bad thing mm -hmm. as far as your Air Force was concerned now how the hell they then managed to fake the whole thing on Washington, I don't know. But the last point I'd make about the Washington case, and this is, again, it's something that sort of occurs to me. If that had been part of something that was escalating, why the hell weren't they over London the following week or Tokyo the week after that? Yeah. And I'm going to answer that question in just a moment. What seemed to be happening, and that case being the pinnacle of it, is not what happened afterwards. It's... It, it, it seemed, if, if you read the literature, and I've, I've gone back and read, you know, obviously the UFO, the flying saucer books that were first coming out then. I mean, this is obviously these, these you can get, particularly these days, you know, some of them have been reprinted so you can get new editions of them. And certainly in the late 1940s, early 1950s and beyond that, one huge school of thought was we, we're being visited by beings from outer space. They're having a look at us, they're monitoring us, they're mapping us. They will eventually land and reveal themselves. That was the expectation. And the right. Washington sighting seemed to be where it was going. Um, and a lot of people expected that. Civilian UFO researchers expected that to be happening. And that's not what happened. Yeah, it, no, it, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And that's probably a blessing. That You had brought it up the first time when you said, you know, why did this happen in Washington, D.C. exactly a week apart? I mean, five, you got five <laughs> unidentified flying objects buzzing the Pentagon, buzzing the White House. Which yeah. makes it seem more like a Russian trick than it does yeah. a otherworldly encounter. And then exactly a week later, they're coming back. And by the way, that's when they called in. Heineck was on that on that second run. He had he had said something about the first one. He said, yeah, "Man, yeah, we, yeah. we need to look into this." And they kind of just, yeah, you know, nothing's going on here. And then when it finally happened yeah. the second time, it was funny. I saw that interview. I think it might have been the History Channel. Maybe it was somebody else. But Heineck said, "You know what? They called me out. I I flew in." He says, "And I and I went to." the Pentagon, and he said, they didn't even pay my cab fare. <laughs> and the next thing you know, he's heading, he's heading up Project That's Blue Book. Right. So, 
Yeah, that was a, that was a very interesting time. Yeah. He was an interesting guy. No, no. Did, t- tell me why there weren't over London because I'm disappointed that there weren't. There was a man named Frank Faschino, author like you are. He was a UFO author and a good one. Very closely tied at the hip with Dr. Stanton Friedman, right. who was the I think one of the probably the most well-known UFOlogist because of the fact that he came from a um, <clears throat> a top secret mm-hmm. classified background where he would. Uh, he was an engineer, a nuclear engineer, and worked on flight, uh, looking for the type of power that could sustain a craft uh, into outer space for travel. And you got to look mm-hmm. if these are if these are otherworldly craft that we're seeing, they're they're not they're not just buzzing down here for a day. And and this is a great example. Frank Fagino mm-hmm. saw, saw the two Washington in- incidents, knew they were separated by a week, and he decided that he would look at that period. And beyond that period, in terms of hours and days, and now they're now the stuff's being reported to different agencies. People were reporting what they were seeing, not only what they saw in and over Washington D.C., but what they saw over surrounding states, especially with these five moving objects. And and it, listeners, if if it was six, don't write me. That's okay. Forgive me, but I'm going to say five because that's what I believe it was. Right. Five moving objects that all had basically bore the same description. So he started pulling up all the reports he could, and he actually put a huge map on his wall and said, man, I've got something here. Because after they buzzed Pentagon, uh, they started spotting them moving westward uh, slowly from uh, D.C., and they were being spotted day after day Mm -hmm. uh, in the states as you start to move westward from Washington, D.C. And he's got these five objects, reports on them from all different sources. Uh, starting to appear in, in front of him, and he's putting pins on the map. And he finally connects it on September 21st in West Virginia, in a little town called Flatwoods in rural West Virginia, where they spot five objects. And they've actually got sightings reported by different people of these objects landing, basically crash landing, as if something had happened to their sensors and control systems. He's got absolute witnessed reports, three different reports of crafts landing within a 20-mile radius of the Flatwoods, West Virginia area. It took about 45 days for these craft to reach their destination in West Virginia. And I want you to picture a little rural town. This is a heavily wooded area, hills, valleys, not many people in it, and the smoke from a Monsanto chemical plant rising up above this little valley, which these people, in these rural people had to live in and enjoy their lives in. A lot of them worked for that plant at that time. We don't know what kind of smoke and fumes were coming out of that Monsanto plant, but we can probably guess. And it may have, and it may just have been enough to cause those flying craft, whoever ran them, some troubles. Because according to witnesses there, at least three of them crashed mm-hmm. within a two-day period. And this all happened on September, started to happen on September 12, 1952. You've got dusk of that day. You've got a bunch of boys playing at the local school. They're playing football out in the field. And it's dusk, just dark enough where they can see. And in plain sight to them appears this craft, a disc-shaped craft, which is a red, with a red light flashing on it, which is hovering sort of a little goes to the left. It goes to the right, but all the while it's sinking, as if it's yeah. having some kind of trouble or looking for a space to land. And they see it land on what they know because these kids have hunted and fished and, and hiked all over this area to be a farm located up on a hill just above their home. And the kids see this and their attention is drawn to it. 
they have to find out exactly what's going on. So this brilliant light streaks across the sky overhead. There's a red light flashing, it slows down, and it crashes into a hillside on what they call the G. Bailey Fisher's farm at that time. And the boys ran to see exactly what had dropped from the sky. One of the boys is saying, hey, this might be a meteor. And another little boy is saying, no, it's a UFO. And they're racing up the hill, and they decide to stop and tell their mom. And their, the, the mother for a number of these boys was called Kathleen May. And she was a young mom, and she... And it, she, at the time, she had her, it was either her nephew or her cousin, a young man there. I think he was about 19 years old. And he was part of the National Guard. His name was Eugene Lemon. And he grabbed a flashlight. She grabbed her stuff. And they went running out of the house with the boys. And the boys and them went running up to the farm. Now it was dark. And as they went through the farm gate, they opened the gate. They closed it behind them, as all people do in rural areas. You always close the gate behind you regardless of what the incident is that draws you in the first place. And the first thing they see is in this flat area, they see a large object sitting there with a red light pulsating on the top. Later, when, when they were asked by any number of different people, they were interviewed separately, their stories from what happened at that point on all matched each other exactly. As they started to approach this craft, they started to smell a nauseating smell in the air. Later, it would make them sick, very sick. It took one mm. boy three days to recover from this, from all the crud that he had in his throat. Their family dog was with them, too. The family dog went running forward, and then they heard the dog yip and then run away. The dog ran past them and back to his home. They approached this object, and according to their description, it was tall, uh, maybe seven feet tall. It had a... If you look at the playing cards, the spades, it had a, it had a helmet or a head that was spade-shaped, like the, like the ace of spades, like the shape of a spade. It had no arms. It was wearing, if you can picture a radiator, how a radiator, if you wrapped a radiator around your waist, let's say for a moment you could, it would look like a skirt. That's what it had from maybe the midsection down. It was like a, a metal almost looked like radiator pipes that went around it. It did not have legs. It did not have feet. It was hovering off the ground. Uh, it had two eyes that glowed red, and those eyes weren't looking at them at the first time they saw it. It was looking up into space and scanning the clouds as if it were looking for something. They all described the same thing later of what they had seen. Uh, when this thing started, it was hissing and gurgling as if it... This thing looked more like a robotic like a robot of some type. It was almost like something you would hatch in a, for a high school play. That's how elementary it looked. This was not what, what you would kind of think of as your typical E.T. type alien. As soon as they heard their flashlight covered this thing, they panicked. Lemon dropped his flashlight. He was in a panic. The rest of them panicked. They ran for it. They ran down that hill as fast as you could possibly run. This time, I, don't, I think they went over the gate. I don't even think they had time to open it. They, but they were very, very shook up, very, very scared from what they had seen. And they reported it when they got back. They reported to the local sheriff the whole bit. The guys drove up there, covered that whole field. There was nothing there. But within days, other reports from other sightings came in. One couple had their, were in a country road up there, they heard a, a crash into the mountainside there. They thought it was a, a plane, like a private plane that had gone down. 
The next thing they knew, their car electric failed, and their car failed. They couldn't move it. And on the road in front of them, out of the woods, comes this basically same shape, whatever it was. It looked at them, it approached them, and it took off its helmet and had a reptilian head. So this case, it was a helmet that they testified, and it had a reptilian head. Uh, that's been, they were interviewed by a, a number of people in terms of what they saw. No one ever found any remains from the crash site, although they did find broken treetops, and they found scorched earth. Uh, but they never saw any craft. And this was the case with one other sighting where a mother and her daughter were taking a, a back path through the woods and were approached by a figure uh, that was, again, similar in looks. This became national news uh, because there was a lot of people sent in to cover them with interviews. A lot of people wrote about it. It appeared in major newspapers, and then it all died away. But to their dying day, these kids swear they saw what they saw. And, of course, as you can imagine, there were a lot of skeptics. Um, I think what's interesting was when Frank Faschino's report pulled the flight path, uh, according to UFO reports, all the way down to this area of West Virginia. It wasn't just in the Flatwoods area, but they had been spotted on that same night around uh, West Virginia in the parks, et cetera, et cetera. So something was happening in that area, not just in Flatwoods and just by this group of people, but by separate people that they did not know, and also reports came in, coming in from the region. So it was a strong story. It's an amazing story, and I one of the reasons I've been involved in, yeah, and, 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 and in some cases there is. I mean, I know I've seen the Kelly Hopkinsville case and a case from Australia, the Knowles family, who had a bizarre incident which involved a UFO buzz in their car as they drove across a very remote part of Australia, the Nullarbor Plain. It's about as remote as it can get. We still have no road on it in Australia. Um, and I can't remember the name of the... The, the person who advanced the idea but he, it basically he talked about a thing that sociologists would call a small group panic where somebody experiences something very intensely that they actually convince everybody else around them yeah and small group panics are you know they're a known phenomena but they can make or break a, a tense situation if you're in a you know if, you, if you're stuck in a boat out at sea and your engines failed or something you, you, your flatwoods monster may be one of those i I only know what I've read. I mean, obviously, you're, you're, you're closer to the ground, John. You, you might be able to go out for a drink tonight and encounter somebody who knew one of the witnesses, you know? And that's a common complaint from skeptics, too. I mean, they, they always say, well, you know, these things uh, can be manufactured. What I like about Braxton, let me just put this in here. What I like about Braxton, you've got, you've got the doctor testimony who treated not one boy, but a couple of those boys that were witnesses to that thing. And he said that, he said the, the reaction that they got, very, very sick, was very similar to mustard gas, and he was at that time he was old enough to have survived World War One and understand and understood the the reactions to mustard gas. So there was some yeah. kind of gas released in that field. Uh, if it was a hoax, uh, the boys were risking their own lives, mm. uh, finding something very similar to mustard mustard gas and inhaling all that. That was one thing I thought that was very unusual. Also, it was the sightings that I told you about that occurred uh, the next day. Um, both uh, both within a 40-mile uh, radius of Flatwoods. One was yeah. 20 miles away, and that was the couple uh, who uh, reported to the police a sighting that they had had 
word yet hadn't gotten around uh, that next day about what had happened. And their descriptions matched perfectly what had been seen uh, by the Lemon Group uh, at Flatwoods. And then a second one with a mother and a daughter. That report also made it to the police. So you've got these... Mm -hmm. In the case of UFO incidents, when there's generally things that happen very close by, either at the same time or very close proximity of that time, that tend to make it worth studying, worth looking at. Can I tell you about a very vivid paranormal experience I had? This is nothing. Okay, right. So this is nothing like the Flatwoods Monster, but this has a totally rational explanation. I'll explain it to you in a minute, and your listeners will be able to figure out the rest of it. So a long, long time ago, in the mid-1990s, I'd got a responsible management job. You know, we'd, we'd just not long bought a house, so we were paying that off. So I was taking all the work I could take, and on top of that, we got a little kid. But I still did a weekend away in London in a hotel I was writing exams and it was really good money you, you just got paid every every time you wrote a question that got accepted so I was absolutely smashing my way through this and thinking every time I put one of these in every time one of these was ticked off right so the two nights I was there I was absolutely shattered and I went to sleep one night and I woke up and I was being vacuumed it was like a vacuum cleaner it was pulling me into the wall yeah my bed my bedclothes were strangling me and it was like i was being wrapped up in a cocoon and being sucked into the wall and it was just horrific and you know i was suffocating right and it was just you know it was just i woke out of a deep sleep and this was happening to me and it was just like the the, the whole world had changed right now, your listeners, if any of your listeners are fans of A Nightmare on Elm Street, they're probably picturing something. You're with me, yeah? I couldn't tell you exactly when this date is. But, but the, the Nightmare on Elm Street film series, so I don't know exactly when this happened. I know it was sometime in the mid-90s, that particular period of my life, because of everything that I was doing, I was working hard, playing hard, you know, and we'd got a little, our youngest was little, so we, we'd got all those kind of, pressures as well the, the one the one night off i'd given myself in about two weeks was to go and see the latest nightmare on elm street movie the point is what i was experiencing is literally the same as the scene in that movie when freddy krueger smashes his way through the wall and hauls one of the kids into his own mouth like that right and it only took me a couple of seconds to wake up at which point i'd come out of this what was effectively a really vivid nightmare back into the hotel room in London and it was like the early hours of the morning and I'd just woken up, right? And I, the, the point I'm making is I had a very, very vivid experience for the fleeting time that that was going on. It was real, yeah? And it's what... I don't even know whether I was whether it happened immediately when I was falling asleep or when I or if I woke up in the night. So I don't I couldn't tell you whether it was a hypnagogic or hypnopompic experience, but the point is they're both the same anyway. And it's... It's, a, it's an experience that some people have put forward to explain some of the most surreal, bizarre visions, paranormal visions, including alien abductions and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was working hard, getting a bit more sleep deprived than I should really have been doing. And like I say, I'd, it's two and two making four in my head because I'd, I'd, that had... 
that had briefly put me into the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And I don't know, I don't know which particular sequel it was, but your listeners will doubtless be able to tell me exactly which movie has that scene when Freddy Krueger smashes through the wall and hoovers somebody off a bed, which is, that was the most recent movie I've been to see at the cinema when that was happening to me. End of, right? Now, if that's got anything to do with Flatwoods, and I'd love to come back some other time, because my favourite cases in ufology, if, if it's appropriate to our favourites, include some of the most surreal ones where you've got very sincere witnesses and things that are just so bizarre that you think that cannot possibly happen. And, I, you know, I've, I've made a particular study of those and I've made a thing, I've made, I've made a habit of writing about those sometimes more than the more mainstream cases. Flatwoods is definitely in that territory and I've no idea, right, about that. I just know that it's got all the other things around it. It's got this strange thing of very sincere witnesses who all seem to experience the same thing. That's very like the Knowles family, the Kelly Hopkins villain, stuff like that, where everybody has the same experience. But it's not an experience, particularly the reptilian alien, that's been replicated by many, many other people. Yeah? A couple of weeks after I did an episode on the Braxton County monster, I was looking at researching for a story, uh, cave drawings. And this happened that it, these particular ones were from the U.S., uh, very, very old Indian tribes, cave drawings on rocks. I forget what state or park it was in. Could have been Arizona, could have been New Mexico. I'm not sure which. And I'm looking close at some of the photographs of these cave drawings. <laughs> and in this one, I see I see a craft hovering in this in the back of the drawing up off the ground. I see I see uh, two characters that obviously were not Indians. They had Indian characters basically yeah. with a one feather coming back from their head. You could tell they were tribe. And then I had these two drawings of what we would describe typically as aliens. With uh, One had a spade-shaped helmet. <laughs> mm. One had uh, one was hovering, uh, and it, its, its body from the waist down was basically uh, skirted. It was, it was very close to a description that the Bra that they had given the Braxton County monster, and I thought this is interesting. I'm looking at a cave drawing here. We don't know how many hundreds of years old this thing was, but it if you could believe the drawing, these beings had come in a ship. The ship was still hovering in the background. These two aliens were in unusual form dress. Neither one had feet or legs. They were hovering off the ground. They had kind of waves. Um, extending out in curvy lines from their helmets, which told you that there was a motion to them or that there was some type of a being. Now, it was interesting because when I inter interviewed Dr. Stanton Friedman, he said, you know, the reason, he was, he was a big believer that, there's the, that the possibility of advanced civilizations with advanced craft capable of covering long distances for long periods of time was... Mm extremely possible. He said they've just advanced to a different technology and level than we are currently at. So we look at them as it's hard for us to believe that we're the that we're not the most advanced civilization in the universe. But he said it's a large universe. I can see why we do it. I just think we could be more imaginative about some of these things because um there's life on our planet that's almost beyond our understanding. For many years people didn't think that um, the creatures we now know as extremophiles, i.e. the microbial life that lives in sulfur-rich 
volcanic jets in the bottom of the ocean. So the, the pressures of the ocean plus the chemical makeup of their atmosphere is beyond what many scientists thought life on Earth could tolerate. And yet we can't deny the fact that they're there, right? Um, and, you know, so life evolves in ways that we, that, that surprises us. And that's just our own planet. Um, we, how the heck we could begin to know? I'll, I'll tell you another time you've ever come back on your show, John, that I once had a chance to talk right. to aliens. And it's a long, long story, which we haven't got time for now. But these aliens apparently existed as pure energy in the atmosphere of the Earth. Now, I'll tell you this much. When I'd finished talking to them, and I didn't talk to them, I had to post questions. I mean, this is like literally in an envelope. <laughs> a, a very British way of doing it. Uh, I got six answers, and I'll tell you some other time, but one of the answers, because I, one of the six answers I got convinced me beyond any doubt that I was not dealing with aliens. <laughs> All right. But we'll, 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 we'll wait for that. I, I, I genuinely don't... I don't know. I mean, I know I know. I keep falling into the sceptical position on this here, and it's just, I suppose it's partly the academic in me. The, but let, let's get back to a basic on this one, John. I love talking about <laughs> it. I do too. And, and, what we're, <laughs> yeah. and at this point, what we're going to do is break from this particular interview and go to part two. And in part two, we're going to be discussing okay. the rest of the top ten incidents that have really created a lot of controversy and interest among ufologists and non-believers alike. And Neil Nixon will be with us for part two, uh, coming soon. Neil, thank you very much for being with us today. We enjoyed having you along with us. Neil, could you please share your recent book on UFOs? We'd like to know where we can find it, what the name is. You can find it on all the places online that will will sell books. It's called UFOs, Aliens, and the Battle for the Truth. Uh, if if you put my name into like Amazon and all the obvious places, you can buy your books. Uh, Neil Nixon. So it's Neil N E I L, and then Nixon, like your old president, um, N I X O N. So again, not not hard to find. And that 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 came out on the twenty fourth of June, i.e., World UFO Day. So it's it's fairly recent, and it's it's been getting good press over here. It's a well, British thank you very much. We appreciate it. Delight talking to you today, and we'll continue this conversation uh, next week. Thank you, Neil. Cheers. Okay. Go well, John. Cheers.